writing. Let's talk about writing for a second. Now, whether you identify as a writer or don't, it's a skill you want to develop or don't want to develop, I think it's important to to point out that writing is one of the most critical, seemingly obvious, yet difficult skills to teach. And in part, that little alchemy there that I just described, that's part of the reason that it is really powerful. It's also a very concrete way of sharing ideas, right? A well-written story, whether that's uh, a book or an email, even just a text or a blog post, those written words have the ability to change minds. They have the opportunity to convey really key, critical, insightful information or, or solve problems. And again, whether you aspire to be a great writer or not, I think it's an incredible skill that is often overlooked. I can't tell you the number of ways, shapes, and forms that has been powerful in my life, not just writing books like Creative Calling, but in helping people understand my ideas, helping people back me as an entrepreneur, help me helping people um, get on board with the vision I have for a piece of art, for a company, for a product. Um, now, you may or may not identify as a writer, and I'm actually not concerned with that. I'm here to tell you that writing is valuable, and whether you are a writer, want to get better at it, or just want to understand the power of it when you are reading a word on a page, I think it's all valuable. And so that is why we created the Creative Live Between the Lines interview series, which focuses specifically on hearing the stories behind the stories from some of the world's top authors. They are an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience. And again, whether you consider yourself a writer, want to be, or, or, or you don't, you need to understand the power of the word. And so in this episode, welcome John Grisham, right? Absolute legend in the world of writing. I mean, an international best-selling author of I don't even know how many page-turning thrillers, you know? It's like, I, I mean, I, I don't even know how many have been turned into films. Like, he is an absolute incredible writer. Uh, I would call him one of, certainly one of America, maybe the world's uh, favorite novelists, uh, if you judge him by the number of copies sold. Uh, his most recent book, The Judge's List, uh, has just come out in uh, October of this year. And this conversation between John Grisham and Kelly Corrigan has a number of highlights, including why seeing the work of others can be, ironically, demotivating, right? You, so many people I know seek inspiration on the internet, but you know maybe what's really happening is that it's demotivating you. Uh, episode also talks about taking on difficult or challenging issues through fiction. Uh, we get to see a little bit more about John's creative process, which I always find fascinating strategies for getting a book published. If you are one of those people who wants to write and most importantly, why it's important to always have an adaptable creative process, especially when it's not working. So again, whether you consider yourself a writer or not, loads of incredible value in this conversation. I can't wait for you to check it out. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you get into the show. 
John Grisham in the house. Hello. Thank you so much My for doing pleasure. this. So we've been talking to all these great people about storytelling and like, could we find a better person who would have more to say on this topic than you? I don't think so. Um, so I want to start at the kind of the highest level. Why do you think that we're so obsessed with story? I have no idea. <laughs> it's just what we do. We tell stories. Yeah. We, we, uh, uh, I come from a family of storytellers, uh, father, grandfather, uh, from a very rural part of America where there was, when I was a kid, there was not um, much in the way of entertainment. Uh, the only uh, contact with the outside world was radio to pick up St. Louis Cardinal baseball games every night. Uh, television came along later, but we spent hours on the front porch late at night when I was a very small child uh, talking and telling stories. And the stories were repeated for generations most of them are probably false, but you know that sure. was the family history. Sure. And uh, storytelling was an art. And did you admire it? it I didn't think to, uh, to admire it. It was just a way of life. Uh -huh. I heard the same stories uh, and new stories, and, and you know later, uh, I never thought about being able to tell a story. Uh, when I started thinking about writing, I, did, I had no. I'd never studied writing. I was a lawyer, and I had never written anything, uh, but I was always a big reader. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started reading all the bestsellers. And I realized, uh, I mean, I didn't learn anything, um, but I, I realized there was a lot of crap that got published. And I, I said, you know, I, I can beat that guy. I totally had the exact same moment. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd read a bestseller and say, you know, this is really not very good. Yeah. Or I'd read somebody else and say, you know, I can never be that good. But yes. there, there was room for me somewhere. Yes. And um, I guess, you know, I just sort of, absorb the basics of um, plotting and planning. The dialogue is all natural and easy. Well, that's probably stuff you pick up on the porch in Mississippi, right? Is sure. You just develop an ear for what sounds like real people talking. I guess. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I never, I never consciously uh, accumulated uh, the dialogue or absorbed it. I just listened to it, and it, I guess it sticks. Is that your favorite part of storytelling, is the dialogue? I have to really watch when I'm writing a novel because uh, I can do it all in dialogue. I know, I feel and the same way. And that's real fast, and if, when I get in a hurry, well, sometimes I get in a hurry when there's a deadline, sure. and my publisher is getting eager, uh, I, I catch myself writing too fast, and I can, I can make pages turn real fast with dialogue. I can too, and, and I, I feel as a reader that I love it so much, it's when I start to feel like I know the character best. Like it's one thing to know what they were wearing and what the first thing they do is when they wake up every day and how big or small their house is, but when I hear their voice, then I think, oh, all right, now. Now we know each other, now yeah. we're people. You have to have a mix of both. I mean, you, and it's, it's always a struggle, uh, even when you're writing suspense and thrillers and mysteries or whatever, um, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Uh, as to how much dialogue to use. Because but you're you having get, to pull out. Yeah, generally. I mean, I, I, could, I, could, I could almost do the whole thing in dialogue. Have you ever thought of experimenting with something like that? I've, read a, cool. I've read a couple of books uh, with, with all dialogue. Yeah. Didn't like them. Okay. Uh, so I didn't, you know, I, because I do like beautiful writing. Yeah. Uh, I love to read beautiful you know, descriptions and, and, of people and places and things and right. events. You know, we, all, we all enjoy that. So again, you gotta, you gotta, there's a mix between how much, how much you're gonna describe 
uh, in Camino Island. How much of the town am I going to describe? How much of the beach? Okay. How much of the bookstore? How much of the you know physical? And you've got to do a fair amount of that to, to put yeah. the reader there. Yeah. So there's always this back and forth about how, how much description. Uh, how, how many pages, action. Yeah. How many pages can you go before you break out in dialogue again? Yeah. So, um, Tell me this, do you have a, like an animating issue or an animating set of issues? Like it seems to me as a reader of yours that you're into social justice mm -hmm. and you're into ambition. Mm -hmm. But do you have a, a sense of what you can't stop thinking about? You can't stop trying to solve on the page? Uh, I can't. You, in popular fiction, you can't preach too much mm -hmm. because you can't assume that your readers share your views. Mm -hmm. Um, I think most of mine do, but I respect those who don't. And again, mm -hmm. you, know, you don't want to beat your readers over the head with your own politics. But some of the issues I choose to write about, death penalty or wrongful convictions or environmental destruction or whatever, um, it's pretty obvious you know, what side of the street I'm on. Mm -hmm. um, the issues that, I, um, that keep me awake are still there. Mm -hmm. And it's the, they almost all deal with social injustice. From a lawyer's point of view, it's, it's very frustrating to see um, so many things wrong with our systems, our legal system and our penal system, and, um, and not be able to address it. And so the older I get, the more mature I get, the more I want to address it. And I think the last, if you look at the last 10 books, they've almost all had an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, that, it does keep me awake. And I wrote a book 10 years ago called The Innocent Man, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, about wrongful convictions. And there are two guys still in prison in Oklahoma that will, uh, I'm not sure we're gonna get them out. And I visited those guys uh, 12 years ago when I was writing the book, and I still correspond with them. And I send them a little money so they can buy stuff at the canteen. But those guys are completely innocent. And it's a, it's a non-DNA case, so we can't get the conclusive proof to get them out, so they're there. And, and there are thousands of them there. And that's, mm -hmm. you know. Josh crazy. Yeah, I wish I could write all their stories. Right. It's so interesting to me, I mean, that sort of speaks to the power of story because you could write op-eds about that all day long and you could do um, a 60 Minutes or a 2020 segment on mm -hmm. wrongful convictions and you would reach some number of people at some level of intellectual or emotional engagement. But if you write a big, juicy novel and you bring those two guys to life on the page, you're going to have way bigger audience right. and way more lasting emotional impact. Do you feel that way? Sure. Yeah. I don't like writing editorials. I've done a few of them, but yeah. uh, that's not what I enjoy doing, or, or even essays. I, I just don't want to do that. <clears throat> I'd rather write the novel or, or, or the, the, the real story yeah. and appeal to that audience because yeah. it's, you know, I'm lucky that there's a big audience out there. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and even in the context of a, of a, of a fictional story, you can explore um, a lot of issues and a lot of people are going to read the book. Yes, and you can show a lot of different sides to an issue because, you, first of all, you have the space. I mean, you have three, 400 pages to work in, and then you have this cast of characters that can represent all the different points of view around a single yeah. case, and you might actually be able to hold people long enough, hold their attention long enough to really open it up and show how such things happen and why they don't get overturned and, and make them feel. It's pretty amazing power you have. Yeah. To galvanize public opinion. Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't I take the book serious, but I also realize um, I'm a famous writer in a country where few people read. Uh -huh. we, I mean, there aren't a lot, a, lot, a lot of readers, okay, fewer and fewer, okay? I know. 
So it's not like you... And you have them all. <laughs> yeah, but I want more. Uh, <laughs> Don't take mine. I just have my little pile. <laughs> I mean, that can have an impact. But again, you're talking about uh, uh, awareness is one thing. Um, changing the way people think or get them to think about an issue through the course of a book. Uh, but it's, it's still, in the scheme of things, it's a small mm -hmm. segment. Um, is there an issue you wouldn't touch that's kind of too hot or too abortion. divisive? Uh-huh. Abortion's one I've been thinking about for a long time, and I'm not sure how. Uh, I, have, I don't have the story yet. Uh-huh. I keep waiting to get the story. Um, so it's kind of on an agenda somewhere that if you were to find the right story, that would be something you might want to. Yeah. 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 I mean, look at the headlines. Uh, yeah. The opioid uh, yes. crisis in this country has so many different angles from the doctors, the drug makers to the, you know, and, and there's a novel in there somewhere that can, can expose what, you know, on one hand we say, well, you don't, I don't have much sympathy for people who get hooked on drugs. It's their fault. Right. But it's not that simple. No, of course uh, not. There are reasons they get hooked, and, and that's an issue. Uh, I'm about to finish the next legal thriller mm -hmm. come out in the fall. It's about student debt. Uh, which Great. is a huge problem. Is, you know, it's we have 1.3 trillion dollars in student debt, and it's 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 adversely impacting a lot of people. I know. And so that that's the that's the whole issue of student debt. I keep a list. Mass incarceration is right. another one I want to write about. Um, I'm waiting for the story. Uh, but and are you just pouring through the newspaper every day? Where mm -hmm. what is your source of all these ideas? Just News, being newspaper. Yeah, super uh, magazine. It's, it's what you read every day. Yeah. When that, the people say, where do you get your ideas? Well, uh, I read the newspaper and I watch some news. And, and how can you avoid these issues? Look at what's happening now in the Justice Department. You know, we're, we're taking steps to go back toward an attitude that we need to incarcerate even more people. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that, that's not working because for both sides of the street, uh, we're talking about criminal justice reform because uh, liberals want, you know, fewer people in prison for, the, for certain reasons. Uh, right-wingers say it costs too much money. Look at what this, when you have an aging prison population, it gets horribly expensive, and that's what's happening to this country. So we keep these guys in prison for 30 years with no parole. You gotta feed them, you gotta provide some level of health care, and it's breaking some states, okay? So we're, yeah. we're, we're gonna meet in the middle. We right. were until, For different reasons. Yeah, for different reasons. We were gonna meet in the middle. I'm not sure where it's gonna go now, yeah. uh, given the current climate, but those are great issues to write about. Yes, and that's also a great way to open up characters is to show the conflicts that each of us have with any given issue and how, you know, how strange bedfellows are made, per se. Like somebody's do it, taking a case for ambition right. and another person's taking a case because it satisfies their moral need to take a stand, and, but both things are pointing them in the same direction and then you get this kind of unholy pair and, and voila, you have drama. Yeah, and where, where they meet, uh, when they meet, uh, that's that's where the novel, that's where the story is. Yeah, and it doesn't always happen. I mean, I, for years I've I've said I would love to write a big thick novel about Washington politics uh -huh. with all the you know all the actors and and the, the lobbyists fascinate me and and, uh -huh. and the clout they have and the money they make and with off the system. Uh, I'm still thinking about it because I can't get my I can't get the story. To, it's too big. It's just yeah. a big book. How uh, many unfinished projects do you have? Well, I have a lot of ideas that rattle around for a long time. Some ideas, some ideas I'll get and write the book right then. It's so uh -huh. inspirational. I'll, I'll pick the idea or it just literally it drops in from nowhere. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll see a case or something or I'll read something about a law firm that blew up or you know, whatever, whatever the story is. 
and I'll say, that's got to be the next book. And I'll, I'll start the outline. I'll work on it to make sure the story works, start researching it, um, put it together, and write the book. Other ideas rattle around for years. I've got notes. I keep files. I'll read a magazine article about mass incarceration today and put it in a file that's been open for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a thick file, and I'm not sure I'll ever get to it. So I, I can't tell you what's going to be next. Yeah. I've learned not to predict you know, what, what the next book's going to be. And, but once you start, once you get through an outline, mm-hmm. has there ever been a case where you thought this, this, is, this has everything I need to make a great story, and you've completed the outline, and then you start writing it, and you say, it's just, I don't know why, but one it's not time, working, yeah, and I'm yeah. going to set it aside. One time. Uh, one time. Yeah, one time I had this great idea uh, for a legal thriller, and I wrote the first 100 pages. It was based on the Bhopal chemical spill in India 30 years ago. Union Carbide killed, uh, well... Their plant leaked uh, stuff that killed 3,000 people. Uh-huh. And it became nice a, rephrasing, that was. Yeah, <laughs> it, it became a huge lawsuit here. And the, the, the plaintiff's bar went nuts. The mass tort lawyers went crazy trying to chase cases in India. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I just knew it was going to be brilliant. And I wrote 100 pages, and my wife said, I don't like any of these people. And I said, okay, I'll show you. So I sent it to my uh, editor at that time, David Gurnan, who's now my agent, and he read it, and he said, I don't like any of these people. And I <laughs> said, well, I'm not going to fight both of them, okay? So right. if it's not working, it's not working. So I put it down and uh, wrote the Did you like any of the people? I loved them. Yeah, you did? Yeah. They, they, were, they were all a bunch of roguish trial lawyers uh-huh. chasing cases in India. I, I, uh-huh. thought, I thought it was, you know, really fun. Yeah. Uh, so that book never got written. I, tried to, I started a novel once, and I sent it to my agent, and she said, I cannot stand the people in this book. And I was like, that, seem, that seems like a bad thing. So you don't have a reader? Uh, I have my internal readers, but in this case, I, she convinced me to share it with her way before I probably should have, right? Because there are early-stage readers and there are later-stage readers, and that's probably something that you've learned over your career is that not everybody can see through the mess to the magic. You know, it's like people, you know how they always stage houses now if they're trying to sell it? Because they look look so staged. They look look so staged. But most people need to see something in the house before they can fall in love. But there are people who can walk into a house and think, oh, I could remodel this thing, I could tear that down, this could be an incredible house. But as as readers, there are only a few people that can look at your crappy draft and say, oh, this could be an incredible book. You know, if you, if you just move this and take that wall out and put a new I-beam down the middle to support your right. second floor, there's something here. Have you discovered who your early reader is? Or do you probably, you probably Well, no, it's, it's my wife. I mean, she read, uh, she used to read the books chapter by chapter. Uh, she got tired of that. Um, she's really tired of all my books, but I make her read them. <laughs> she has no choice, okay? This is, this is business, all right? Um, but she, and I tell students this when I talk to students about writing, because you can't teach writing. You, may, you can teach editing, maybe, but you can't teach writing. Uh, but there are certain things you can do, and you've got to have somebody, first of all, who loves you and who wants you to succeed and can be brutally honest with you about what you're writing. And it could be a spouse or, or a parent or a teacher or somebody that you, you know, you're very close to uh, who can be very honest. And if you don't have that, um, you're, you're really missing something important. I got lucky from the very beginning because... Um, we were, it was 30 years ago, 
and I was writing my first book. Renee uh, was an English major, so she you know, was a voracious reader. She loved all kind, types of books, still does. And uh, she read the first handwritten chapter of A Time to Kill over 30 years ago. She didn't know I was writing it. I said, hey, I want you to read something. And I gave her, it was on a legal pad. And I said, this is the first chapter. And she said, what have you done? I said, I'm trying to write a book. And she said, oh, okay, I never heard this before. And we'd been married, you know, five years. And um, she said, okay, I'll, I'll read the first chapter. Late at night, and I was so nervous, I left the house and walked around the block a few times. Totally. Came back, and she said, uh, this is pretty good. I'd like to read some more. I said, okay, I'll go write some more. I don't have any more. Yeah, I'll go write some more. One second. Yeah. And then chapter two and chapter three, and that went on for uh, three years. And I was practicing law many hours a week. And You were in, like, the state legislature. I was in the state legislature, which took, which took up half my time uh, away from home. Uh, she's having babies. I mean, life is pretty crazy. And the only time I had to write was early in the morning, so I, I, you know, I was pretty disciplined about it. I also put it down several times and quit, not quit, but just got tired of it. I what, just, what made you believe that anyone would ever um, take you on as a client? Like, because I got stuck, I mean, I didn't do it until I was 40 because I just couldn't imagine why any agent would ever even open an envelope for me. I didn't think about that as much as I would, I would walk in a bookstore. Oh, that's And so I would awful. see the wall of brand new books, you know, the I New know. York Times bestseller list, uh-huh. you know, the books, all these, you know, not writers that I, I was reading, and I would stand there and think, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Who wants to hear from me? Right. I have nothing to say. What could the world need less of than yeah. another one of these? <laughs> that, that was when I got discouraged. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, I kept plugging away. I, I loved the story. And maybe you loved thrilling Renee. I mean, it's pretty cool to ha- have your spouse think you're onto something. Like, I, I, that's very motivating for me. Yeah. Yeah, and she... Uh, you were a serialized writer. You were like Charles Dickens of the South or something, right? Because you're giving her this a little bit at a time. Yeah, and she... Uh, there were tw- a couple times she said, okay, where's the, where's the book? And I would say, I'm not writing. I put it down. And she would say, no, you got to finish it. And so a couple times, and that was pretty crucial. And again, I, once, I, once I was probably, you know, more than halfway through it, I, I began to, to get excited about finishing it. And honestly, the goal was just to tell this story and finish the book and be able to say I'd written a novel. That was when I started. That's when I started. Once I was halfway finished, I started thinking about, it'd be kind of fun to get this published, you know? I know. And make a buck or two off of it, and so whatever. And you dare not think those thoughts, and it's so intense. No, but at the same time, I had the bug to write, and I was really tired of being a lawyer. After a few years, I was bored with the law, and I had a small little, you know, office, and you know, a, a lot of clients who couldn't pay and stuff like that. It was not a whole lot. It was not rewarding. I also had the, the dream of writing. And I, I think, okay, you know, maybe I can... I started reading the, the uh, Travis McGee novels of uh, John D. McDonald, a series. And I thought, well, I got to put together a series yeah. with a lawyer in a small town and crimes and all this. And I thought, you know, I could publish a series of these and, you know, maybe expand the yeah. readership. So I, that's what I was thinking. And I... I I read all these uh, books about how to get published and uh-huh. the Writer's Digest tips on, you know, I was going through all that totally. phase. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I started submitting. It's fun to have a dream. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing to be in the hunt, I call it. Yeah. It's so exciting. Well, yeah, I used to love to get the mail because it was more rejection letters. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> but something was happening, you know. Oh my God, Somebody I'm in New York said no again, but it was, you know, it right. was, I, I was shipping it back and forth long before the internet. Sure. We, we were running copies and... You know, I'd, I'd send the first three chapters and the cover letter and the synopsis, and 
it would come back and I'd, you know, I had a list. I had a list of agents and a list of editors. And oh, I bought a book. I bought a hardcover book of agents. Like, you know, 7,000 agents. This is pre-Google. I didn't have that. Yeah, pre-Google. Uh, this is pre-internet. I had uh, the Literary Marketplace was the big, thick book. Totally. All the agents. That's what I had. And I was reading all this stuff, so I'd, I'd see the agent's name that I recognize, and so I would put him on the list or her on the list. And, you know, we, I'd gone through probably 15 agents and 15 oh. publishers with a time to kill. And um, it's kind of a funny story. I don't know how much time we have. Um, I had been gone for the week, came home and got the mail. And there was a bunch of rejection letters. And I was tell, I said, Renee, we're having dinner. Kids were small. And, and I said, I got a bunch of rejection letters this week. She said, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, okay. She said, you know, you're sending them the first three chapters of the book, and that's, that's not the best part of the book. Why don't you send, you know, where this happened and that happened and that happened, send those chapters, just three chapters, you know, at random. And I said, well, that's pretty stupid. Who wants to read, you know, three chapters at random, okay? She said, well, you're not doing so hot with the first three, so why don't you try something different? And I did. I said, okay, this is all fun. You know, this, this is a, this a, this a secret little hobby I've got going. Why not? So I picked chapter one and chapter five and chapter seven or eight where something important happened and sent those to the next five people on the list. You know, my secretary is doing all the work. She's copying and, you know. That's great. And within a week, uh, two of them had called. Two of the ag ah. agents had called from New York. And uh, the first guy who called was a guy who'd been around for a long time. And he said, I, I, wanna, I want you as a client. And the other guy called and said, hey, I want to talk about your book. And there was a big difference there. Sure. So I signed up with uh, the first guy. And it, and it took a year. He went back to all the big publishers who already said no. Uh -huh. And they said no the second time around. And he had a, he, he, it took him a year to sell it. So it really worked out for him, though. It was a good phone call he made that day. Yeah. <laughs> and how about those other guys, the 15 people that passed on you? Must It just must be like they're... Dying words, like, I should have said yes to John Yeah, Bishop. that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah that's the business. Uh, they said no for very good reasons. Um, I actually found the file. You know, I'm a lawyer, so I kept everything. Oh, God. I, I found the file the other, oh, about a year ago. We were cleaning out of all the letters, the, the letters I sent and the, and the rejection letters. So You I, have to publish it just for, for every young I, I, storyteller in the world. I would never embarrass anybody. Oh, we can block it out. We can black it out. I just was at a school showing my daughter, and they at, at this high school they had the rejection wall, and it was all the letters from all the schools that had rejected seniors, and they just tape them up on the wall. So it's like Princeton saying no, and Duke saying no, and whatever, and then the kids can scribble on it whatever they want. Like, I didn't want to go to your school anyway, or University of Losers, or whatever. But it's, it is sort of satisfying <laughs> that it all turned for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, fir the first book was uh, published, A Time to Kill, he printed 5,000 copies, and it was a flop. I mean, it, we, you know, it didn't sell. And all that energy and work and dreaming and imagining, and then... Yeah, it was... Uh, but 10 million now, I think, I saw. Closer to 20. But who's yeah, counting? We whatever. don't keep up with numbers. We don't, yeah, we don't, 10, we don't watch 20. the numbers. No. Uh, but I had, I had a very good... My, my <laughs> so agent, insane. My agent, when... When I sent him a, the, the, a thousand pages of A Time to Kill, we cut it by a third, by the way, which, which was yeah. a year of my life. Uh, we sent the manuscript, I sent the manuscript to him, FedEx, and he got it, and I called the next day. I said, okay, what are we gonna do now? He was this tough old guy here in New York, and he said, uh, he said look, don't call me every day. Um, he said, I'm gonna sell this book, uh, but don't be calling me all the time. I said, okay. He said, I'm gonna give you some advice. 
uh, start writing your next book. And by the time you have it written, I'll have this thing published. It'll keep you busy and you won't be calling me every day. Uh-huh. I said, okay. He said, you got any ideas? And I said, I got a great idea. I got a great idea that, that Renee has liked for some time. And he said, send me a one page summary of your idea. And the working title was The Firm because I didn't have any other title. That was just gonna be the working title of this you know, story. And I sent him the one page synopsis of The Firm and uh, he, called, he started calling me back. And uh, he said, this is a big book. He said, this, is, this is, could really be spun if you can get the book written. And I said, okay, and Renee was crazy about it too. So even though A Time to Kill, it took him a year to sell it, then a year for it to come out. When it came out in June of 89, I mean, again, it was a flop, but I was almost finished with the firm. Yeah. So I'd been, I'd been busy in the meantime. And I told, uh, I told Renee and I talked about it. I said, you know, the first book uh, doesn't sell, it hadn't sold. Uh, I'm going to write the firm, and if it doesn't sell, I'm quitting, okay? I've got a real career as a lawyer, and this is just taking up too much time. I, you know, I never dreamed of doing this, or I, maybe I have for the past few years, but it wasn't a childhood dream or right. something I thought about in college. You know, this is not something I, uh, I'm going to do it one more time with the firm. And if it doesn't work, forget it. I'll, I'll put it down. I guess we know it how worked. that yeah, it turned worked. out. What did they pay you for um, Time to Kill? Do you 50, remember? Uh, Fifteen thousand dollars, um, which I, which was, was pretty nice in, in 1988 when we signed the contract. I got the magic phone call in '88 that uh, it was going to be published. That was a big phone call, and uh, Renee, Renee and I rushed to New York. Our first trip to New York, we paid for it um, to meet with the editor. And, and we were on cloud nine. And a year later, the book came out in 89. And that was a big moment for us. That's incredible. All right, uh, so we don't have any more time left, but I want to ask you these five questions real quick. Name a book you wish you had written. Mm. Oh. Grapes of Wrath. What was the last story that made you cry? Never cried. What? Not reading a story. John, Christian, you need to get in touch with it, baby. You know, uh, I just, um, I can Nothing be... gets you chucked up when you're reading? When I'm reading? Yeah. No. I'm going to give you one of my books and see if you can make it through. <laughs> um, if your mother wrote a book about you, what would it be called? Well, she's very devout. It would have to be something, uh, the gospel according to St. John. Like <laughs> Who, I think I know the answer to this. So other than your wife... Who can you not live without, creatively speaking? Mm, nobody. There's no one. Just Renee. Yeah, nobody else has any input into the beginning of the story. I mean, I have, I mean, I have, I have, um, I have a life, a long time editor slash agent I've been with for 27 years. David Gurnett bought the firm in 1990. He was an editor at Doubleday, and we're the same age. And we grew up in the business together. Yeah. And then 22 years ago, he became my agent. And so, and we're, we're very close. And he, we talk about ideas and things like that. He reads it after I finish with Renee's edits. And his input is uh, crucial, crucial as an editor. If you could get everyone in the world to read one book, what would it be? I can't even begin to think that. I don't know. I don't know. The Firm. Oh, no, they already, already all read, read, read it. They've already read it. <laughs> 
a smug answer. They've already read it. They've already read it. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk My to you. My pleasure. A lot of fun. Thank Thanks. you very much. Right. Hey, thanks so much for listening. But And before you go, I wanted to say I really appreciate you joining me today. These conversations are the highlights of my week, and I'm always learning something new from these guests. Hopefully, alongside you, you get value. Now, I know that so many of you have asked how you can support the podcast. Uh, we're sponsored by Creative Live. They foot the bill, so I don't have to put ads for uh, underwear or cheap sunglasses or anything else like that uh, at the front end of the podcast. So just a handful of thoughts here. First, the hardworking, talented crew at Creative Live would love it. We would all love it if you are a subscriber uh, to Creative Live for, you know, 149 bucks a year, you get access to 2000 classes. Um, if you are not, if you want to check that out, that's at creativelive.com slash creator pass, all in word. Also importantly, sharing the takeaways and providing links to the show for any of the platforms that you've got social reach or a footprint. Even if your community is small, I believe that's the best way to spread the show. Small, uh, connected, like-minded communities. Um, also leaving a review uh, at any of the platforms where you listen to the show is huge for having it come up early in search results. So just a, a couple ways that you can help support the show. Uh, most of them are free. Uh, if you do want to check out the Creator Pass, I think you would love the subscription to Creative Live. But I just want you to know I am so grateful. And um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and are, are get your knees bent waiting for the next one to come out, which is probably I don't know, tomorrow or the next day or we will never stop. Thanks for being a part of the show.